about uh, three months ago, I guess, maybe four months ago now, uh, Jordan, uh, myself, uh, Austin uh, Presnell, who actually works for CityFest and uh, did our training last week. Uh, he does announcements sometimes. Uh, little side note, he's not even here because of CityFest, but uh, he's coming on staff with us uh, later this month, which is going to be awesome and uh, super, super excited about that. I was supposed to announce that last week while he was here uh, so that I could show them all to you, but uh, I forgot. So <laughs> I'm doing it today when he's not here. Dave also uh, popped in via video, and uh, we were basically getting away to pray, uh, to work, uh, to listen to God and say, God, what do you want for our church this year? Uh, what do we need to be diving into? What do you want our church to, to, to really experience? What do we need to be teaching? And so we really just spent time like talking through that and, 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 and working on that and listening to God and saying, all right, God, what, what is it? And what we felt like God uh, was saying, because we, we thought there might be a couple things, and then we all kind of gained some real traction and unification on the concept of identity. Now, we're about a year, not quite a year and a half old as a church, so we're still really young as a church. God's been doing some amazing things uh, in our midst over the last uh, year and a half. We've seen people come to Christ, seen people get baptized, seen lives uh, get, get changed and transformed, seen us go through difficult things together and walk with one another and just recognize God's presence among us. Some of the greatest things that I've heard as a pastor is when someone is a part of this church, walks into this assembly, and they say things like, and these are actual quotes I've heard people say, I've not experienced the power or presence of God so heavy in a really long time. Like that's, like, that's awesome for me. We're, we're in a building. Like, this is a, we own this building. This is crazy. Like, no church our age should have a building this nice. God's provision, thanks to the church, Central Western, that sent us out. Like, God's doing awesome things. And so we said, well, what do we need to, like, know? And we just felt like God was saying, identity. You need to know who you are, like, as individuals. You need to know who we are. As, as a church, and you need to know who I am, who God is. And so that's what we're going to do for the next, well, really the whole year. This series is really a series on who you are. Who am I as individuals? Uh, the next series is actually going to be a series on who we are as TLC. We've been walking through a process for the last few months uh, on vision clarity, uh, um, kind of mission, vision value stuff. And uh, uh, we're actually then going to be diving into a process starting at the end of this month on what does that actually mean then? What's, what's those strategic opportunities that we really need to dive into? And I'm actually, I'm, I, I'm so excited about the series that we're starting right now, but I'm also super stoked about the series that we're going to be starting uh, after that because I get to kind of unleash some of these new ideas, values, uh, our, our values, our words, because words create worlds. And so uh, how we talk, how we think about ourselves, it actually helps shape who we are. And then we're going to actually move into a series that talks about who is God. Now, now here's the reality, though. None of that stuff stands alone by itself. Uh, these ideas are not only interrelated, they're also interdependent. In other words, each answer to one of those questions, who am I, who are we, who is God, they all interact with one another. You, you actually can't figure one out without the others. Uh, they're important and necessary, they all inform one another. And I'm super excited to be able to engage with the concept of our identity. I think identity is so important because it really helps us begin to recognize 
who we are, which then informs what we do, why we do it, and how we do it. And so the question is, do we want to rule the world? <laughs> it's actually interesting because it, 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 ruling is the idea of like what kings and queens do, right? Uh, you can't watch a Disney movie, right, and not realize that it involves at least one character that is a prince or a princess, right? Often they have both within the movie, and there's kings and queens, and that's kind of the storyline. Usually there's some tragedy that is unfolded, and they're trying to get back to their identity or find out who they actually were. I mean, almost every single Disney movie. Listen to this list. Snow White, Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Little Mermaid, Sleeping Beauty, Tangled, Brave, Frozen, all of them, every single one of them is dealing with princes and princesses and kings and queens. Why is this this universal storyline that seems to crop up all the time? It's the same reason that uh, last Christmas, um, while my kids were on Christmas break, I was trying to find a Netflix movie for them to watch, okay? Something on Netflix, they can watch it, you know, take a couple of hours, and uh, um, this movie came up called A Christmas Prince. It's made for Netflix, okay? Uh, Just by looking at that, you can already tell what kind of movie it is, right? And so uh, I knew my daughter was going to be on board, like she'd be cool with watching it. It was my nine-year-old son who also was like, ooh, that looks really good. I want to watch that. And I was like, my nine, okay, I got two of the four, so that's like more than I usually get. So I'm like, all right, we're going to turn it on. So I turn it on, and I start watching, and this is literally uh, what it's about. An aspiring young journalist, Amber Moore, is sent to the foreign nation of Aldovia to cover a press conference regarding the crown prince Richard, who is set to take the throne following his father's recent death. Richard is alleged to be an irresponsible playboy and is also rumored to be planning to abdicate the throne. Though she hopes it will lead to a big break, the prince fails to appear for the press conference, frustrating the assembled journalists. However, Amber is soon mistaken for the new tutor of the young Princess Emily, Prince Richard's young sister. Uh, Emily takes, she, and she takes the opportunity to go undercover to investigate the rumors of abdication, mystery, intrigue, romance, and love. And the movie goes on to have a number of twists and turns and basically ends with Prince Richard showing up in New York City on New Year's Day to propose to Amber, and I get (laughs) teary-eyed. What is up with that? You saw the kind of movie it was, and I got sucked in to this terribly written, epic movie of a journalist from Queens who actually gets to become a queen. I'm like a 40-plus-year-old man with a beard, tattoos, who rides a motorcycle, and I got teary-eyed. What's up with that? And there may or may not be a sequel coming out this Christmas (laughs) that I guarantee you I will not. Probably, I'm going to watch it, I guarantee. I'm going to watch it. What's up with that? I actually believe it's because deep within us, we all want to feel as though we're important and valuable, that we're kings, that we're queens. I mean, there's something deep within our souls that resonates with that. That's why this cheesy storyline 
keeps popping up in art, movies, music, literature. Because there's something about it that every single one of us resonates with. Where does the storyline come from? It comes from Scripture, actually. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to Genesis chapter 1. If you need a Bible, uh, you can raise your hand. We've got some ushers that are coming down. They'll make sure to get you a copy of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, literally, it's the first page. Now, before we can dive into our text today, it's actually important that we get a little bit of context of what the culture was that Genesis was written into. This isn't the first or only creation myth that's floating around at the time. Now, I know some of you are like, well, he just used the word myth. What does he mean by creation myth? You telling me that the Bible's a myth? Well, yes, I, I, I am, but not in the way that you probably assume I'm telling you that it's a myth. You see, a lot of times when we hear the word myth, we assume that that means fake, false, right, or fanciful, right? Like it's just a made-up story to tell us something. But that's actually not the correct definition of what a myth is. Myth is just a genre of literature. In fact, I'm going to throw a, uh, a definition up on the screen for you to read so that we're all on the same page when I talk about a creation myth or a creation narrative. It's a cosmogonic myth, okay, a creation myth, that's what it's called, a symbolic narrative of the world, of how the world began and how most, uh, excuse me, how people first came to inhabit it. While in popular usage, you don't see this up there, but I'm going to keep reading, the term myth often refers to false or fanciful stories. Members of cultures ascribe degrees of truth to their creation myths. In the society in which it is told, a creation myth is usually regarded as conveying profound truths, metaphorically, symbolically, and sometimes in a historical or literal sense. Okay? Do we all understand now when I use the word creation myth? I'm not saying that it's not true. I'm saying it's a genre of literature that helps us understand what was going on because the authors weren't actually there. And so they're helping us understand. Now, sometimes we try to bring questions to the Bible that I don't believe the Bible's actually trying to answer. Sometimes we want to bring the questions of how God did it or when God did it, and I don't know that Scripture's trying to answer that question with Genesis 1. I do believe that the author of Genesis 1 is actually trying to answer the who question and the why question. Who created and why they created what they created. Now, like I said, Genesis isn't the only creation narrative or creation myth that's floating around at this time. Uh, there's actually uh, a number of them, but there's two that are written um, possibly, probably even a little bit earlier. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, um, just because Genesis was written a little bit later that the idea wasn't always around, okay? Because most of the stuff was happening through oral tradition before it was ever put down on cuneiform or any stone tablets or anything like that. But some that are a little bit earlier actually come from the same region of Mesopotamia around the third millennium BC. We have a Sumerian creation myth and we have a Babylonian creation myth. Uh, let me explain to you what they were, okay? The Sumerian one uh, revolved around the god Nama and her son Enki. And uh, basically there were some lesser gods, so there's like a hierarchy of a bunch of gods and uh, uh, 
Nama and Enki are kind of at the top, and these lesser gods start complaining about all the hard work that they have to do. And so Nama and Enki then create humans to basically do all the work on earth so that the lesser gods can become lazy. That's really what the whole creation narrative is about. And so humanity is uh, really nothing more than a slave labor for the gods. Uh, it's very similar in what we see in the Babylonian creation myth. Babylonian myth, the, it's called the Enuma Elish, basically has two main gods. I'm, I'm, I'm really simplifying this, but Marduk and Tiamat. And they get into an epic battle. Uh, Marduk wins. He kills Tiamat. He divides her in half, literally cuts her in half, says it rips her like a dried fish. And half of her becomes the earth, and the other half becomes the heavens, the sky. And then he takes her slain lover and uh, takes his blood and creates humanity. And the Metropolitan Museum of Art explains it this way. It says, meanwhile... Marduk fulfills an earlier promise to provide provisions for the junior gods if he gains victory as their supreme leader. He basically makes a deal with them. You guys make me your supreme leader, and then uh, I will do something for you. So it says he then creates humans from the blood of, I have no idea how to say, Kingu? Who knows, whatever, but that dude. The slain and rebellious consort of Tiamat. He does this for two reasons. First, in order to release the gods from their burdensome menial labors, and second, to provide a continuous source of food and drink to the temples, because that's where the gods would eat and drink. Okay? So, again, humanity in this creation myth is created only as slave labor. We're supposed to do all the stuff that the gods don't want to do. And, and, and basically make sure that things get done on earth and provide food and drink so they don't have to do anything. So when Genesis comes along, or at least is written down, or at least moves into that particular culture, it would be shocking. Shocking and subversive. Why? Well, let's read and find out. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's actually a piece of poetry, the very first piece of poetry in all of Scripture. God speaks it. And then just a chapter later, when Adam first meets Eve, he breaks into poetry as well, doing exactly what his creator has done. I love that. Little tidbit, little side note. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I want to talk about three words in these three verses basically today. Because this is so shocking and subversive to the culture that it would have been written into, at least the surrounding cultures, because it was so unbelievably different. I not only believe that it's true, I actually believe that it makes the most sense. Because it resonates with something deep within us. The first word is the word image. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's the word uh, Salem, and it's in verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. The word image literally means um, image, idol, or statue, 
Okay? Now, a lot of times we assume then that when we're made in the image of God, that somehow we must be a representation of him. All right? That uh, uh, we must somehow look, correlate with God, but that, that's not it at all. Okay? Uh, because otherwise, uh, if you lived in Holland, Michigan, you would assume God is like 6'6 and blonde hair and blue eyed, okay? Uh, and he's probably not. All right? Because God's spirit. You see, uh, the idea of being created in God's image isn't that we somehow rep, uh, that we are a representation of him, but that we represent him. All right? Do you see the difference there? We actually represent God, not a representation, but a representative. All right? So, uh, J.H. Walton, he's a, a Genesis, um, well, an Old Testament scholar. He, he says this, and I love it. He says, the image of God in people provides them the capacity not only to serve as God's vice regents, now check this, this is huge, what a vice regent is, his representatives containing his essence, but also the capacity to be and act like him. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. We are his representatives who contain his essence, and we have the ability to be and act like him. He goes on to say, while we are all in the image of God, every person, we likewise also have the capacity to become more and more in the image of God. We were created with the potential to mirror divine attributes. I was just at... uh, Frederick Meyer Gardens, uh, a little over a week ago for the Lake Street Dive concert. I love, man, every summer I want to go to at least one concert there. Like, it's just such a great venue. Uh, Lake Street Dive has a song, though. Um, it's actually how I really kind of got into their music. Uh, it's just called I Can Change. I can change, I can change, I can still change, I can still change. I love those lyrics because I think one of the things that it means to be human is that we can change. That, that's actually one of the things that it means to be created in the image of God. We've been almost given like this seed from God that if we tend to it can grow more and more to look and act and be like God. Now, not to become God, I'm not saying that, but part of what it means to be created in the image of God is that We have the ability to be and act like him. We we represent him to one another and to the entire creation. This is like mind-blowing in that ancient culture. Quite honestly, I think it's mind-blowing in our culture today. He goes on uh, to say in verse 26, not only are we created in his image and his likeness, but he says, so that they may rule. This is our second word. First word is image, which means we are a representative for God. We represent him to the world. The next word is the word rule, which is the Hebrew word radah. Okay? Now, this is uh, kind of crazy, uh, to be honest, because um, this would have been so like, antithetical to every other creation myth at the time, because humans were created as slave labor. And now here, not only are they made in the image of God, okay, but we're actually created to rule with God. The word rule uh, really kind of has this idea of 
uh, reign or have dominion. Who has dominion? Who reigns? Who? Kings and queens, that's right. Kings and queens rule. This is not slave labor. God has created humanity to reign with him, to be a king and a queen. You're like, why does this universal storyline keep coming up? Why does it resonate so deeply within us? Because you've got royal blood coursing through your veins. It was part of the reason that you were created in the first place. Uh, John Mark Comer, he's a, a pastor out in Portland. He's an author, uh, uh, and Jordan has a massive man crush on him. So I'm, I'm just saying. Just saying. He wrote a book called Garden City. If, uh, if you've never read it, uh, I would highly recommend that you get it. Some of the ideas are actually coming straight out of uh, um, that book of how we're kind of tackling this series. I'm not getting into everything that he talks about. Another great book uh, is by Tim Keller, uh, Every Good Endeavor, it's called. Um, there's a few others that I'm going to give you along the way. But John Mark Comer uh, quotes one Hebrew scholar, and when he translates this particular idea of ruling, uh, it says, to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. Oh, that's good stuff. To actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. Uh, let me read an excerpt from his book to you. John Mark says this. Think about it. God could have made humans from the dust like he did with Adam, but instead he chose to work through marriage and family, partnership. He could have made food fall from the sky like he did with manna in the Exodus, but instead he chose to work through farming and agriculture and trade, partnership. He could have put Adam and Eve into a city like he's going to do in the New Jerusalem, but instead he chose to put the proto-humans in the garden and give them a shot at starting a civilization from scratch. Why? Because God is looking for partners. Friends, let that sink in for a second. You're not here just to do some menial tasks. You're not here to do some stuff that God didn't feel like doing. You were created and placed on this earth to partner with God in taking the world someplace. Identity matters. To know who you are and why you were created matters because it has massive ramifications for everything else in your life. Don't miss this. Now, if we continue to read verse 27, I just read it for you. It's the beautiful poetry. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, read along with me. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The third word I want to talk about this morning, our last word, is the word subdue. Uh, this is the Hebrew word kibosh. You've ever heard the phrase, put the kibosh on it? Okay, that's where it comes from, all right? Put the kibosh on it. Well, what does kibosh mean? Subdue has the concept, this idea of harnessing something wild to bring it under control to shape it into something useful. That's what it means to subdue, right? So if you've got to put the kibosh on something, the idea is that you're like bringing it under control. You're like making it do what you want it to do, okay? Stopping it from doing whatever it wants to do. Like when my kids are crazy. <laughs> and I say, i got to put the kibosh on. Like, yeah, i got to tame them, wild beasts, 
right? Usually when we think of the word subdue, right? We think of my kids are like, what's he talking about? Usually when we talk about this, it's, it, we have this concept in our mind of, of wild horses, right? Like they're, they're corralled and then they're slowly taught, you know, how to accept a rider, or a human to touch them and then a rider to, to, to get on and, and be ridden. You know, we think of like elephants in the logging industry in the 19th century in Southeast Asia or, you know, big bulls that, you know, plow land and that we think of animals usually. And, and that's a great way to think of it. But the word subdue doesn't simply have the idea to go along with animals, it has the idea to go along with everything that exists in the world. All right, so rivers, oceans, oil, gas, forests, gems, metals, silk, cotton. You see, we're supposed to partner with God in taking the raw elements of the world and doing something with it that makes it better. I think this is why I get so excited every single time I'm driving to Chicago. I'm not kidding you. Like, I love Chicago's next to GR, it's my favorite city. And when I'm driving into Chicago from the south side, and all of a sudden you kind of go over the bridge, and then all, it feels like out of nowhere, the city just rises up. Every, like I've driven that trip so many times, and yet there's something inside of me every time. It's like, wow. Humans have done amazing things, and we still do amazing things. Right? Noah was the first one to plant a vineyard, grow grapes, and then make wine with it. He's also the first one to get drunk and have incest, so there's that too. But we have the potential to partner with God to do amazing things, right? Look, 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 look what we did with beans that grow on a tree that somebody realized if you harvest them and then you roast them and then you grind them and then you brew them, you get coffee, right? I mean, civilization didn't start until, there were no cities before coffee. I don't know if that's true, but it makes sense to me, <laughs> right? Even better than that, cocoa bean. Have you ever had a cocoa bean, just a cocoa bean? Terrible. This is not even good. But you add a little milk and some sugar. Woo! Chocolate. Like that's what we're supposed to be doing. Like we're chocolate makers, people. You and I. And more than that, we, we make cities and, and bridges and, and airplanes, all kinds of different things, right? Blues music. Van Gogh paints beautiful things that move our hearts. Cheesecake. Founders Canadian breakfast out. Can somebody please, I don't know, do we have any chefs in here? Because if we do, can someone please make me a Founders Canadian breakfast out cheesecake? Because I'm just saying, that would be amazing. But we've also done a lot of terrible things under the guise of subduing. You see, God has given us this gift, this blessing, but we have also misused it, Right? We've created slavery and abuse and pornography and ISIS, the economic crisis of 2007, the endangered species list, Hiroshima, tons and tons of plastic garbage in our oceans, oil spills, and worst of all, country music. <laughs> oh! <laughs> We're supposed to partner with God in bringing this world creating something better, taking the world somewhere. That's why God didn't place Adam and Eve in a city, even though he knew that's where we were going to wind up. He always intended that we would wind up in a city. He gave us a world full of raw materials, and he said, you are kings and queens because I've created you to be my representatives. 
And I want us together to make something. Friends, that's your identity. That's why I get teary-eyed when I watch a terrible movie called A Christmas Prince. Because there's something inside of me and you that resonates with this because it's exactly who we were created to be. And when we understand our identity, it begins to inform everything else in our lives. It shapes what we do, it shapes why we do it, and it shapes how we do it. And this is what I want to talk about next week. God, you created us to be your likeness, your image, to represent you, to have your essence supernaturally given to us. It was your breath that blew into our lungs to give us life. And Father God, you have made us royalty. You have given us the job of royalty to represent you to others and to this entire world to take care of this earth that you created. But not to do it on our own, to actually partner with you, to do it the way that you want us to do it. God, we know we screw it up so often. We have slaves that make our clothes so that we can get them half off. We abuse the earth thinking that it doesn't matter. God, we, we want to represent you well. God, you gave us the earth to rule over and subdue. God, that matters how we do our jobs, how we care for others. It matters how we work. And God, I pray that you would allow us to really understand our identity deep within so that it can form everything else within our lives. What a gift you have given us. What a blessing you have bestowed. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that even though we have blown it so many times, you came to this earth, you lived perfectly, you died on the cross, and you rose back to life so that we could reinstate a relationship with you to live with you forever, to partner with you in the redeeming of all things. What a gift. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Guys, thanks so much for being a part of TLC. I'm so excited about what we're going to be talking about the next few weeks. Uh, it's good stuff, and it's practical stuff. It will have huge implications for what you do, what you pursue, uh, the college students, your majors, okay? Uh, those of us that are in the workforce, how we work, why we work. Uh, for those of us that are maybe asking the question, am I actually doing what I'm supposed to be doing? We're going to seek to answer some of those questions over the next few weeks, and I can't wait to do it. Have a great rest of your Sunday. We will see you at uh, City Fest tonight, five o'clock. If anybody needs prayer, we have a prayer team that's going to meet in the back, and you can just go back there. They would love the opportunity to just pray with you. Who doesn't like a little prayer. That's good stuff. Go back there. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you next Sunday.